Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 343. This program is dedicated by Mushka Katzman in honor of Mrs. Shandy and Rabbi Jay. We're in the week of Parshas Mishpotim. This coming Shabbos will also be Rosh Chodesh Oder, as well as Parshas Shkolim, which is the additional chapter that we read in the coming weeks, starting with Shkolim, which will later be what's called the Dal Parshas. A few weeks after that will be Parshas Zocher, the Shabbos before Purim, and Parshas Pora, followed by Parshas Achedesh, which leads us into the month of Nisan. So, as is our custom, we begin with living with the times, a message, a lesson that we can apply to our personal lives, Teda, Melosh, and Hera, Teda comes from the word directive, guidance, instruction, it's the blueprint for creation, Teda is, and instructs us like a life operator's manual on every aspect of how to live the healthiest, the most fulfilling life that is aligned with the mission, the divine mission, which your and my and every person's soul was charged with as we came down to this earth. And that's exactly the purpose of Chassidus Supply, taking Teda in general and specifically Chassidus and applying it to our specific details of our lives. So, let's start with Mishpatim, and then we'll go to Shkolim and Rishchidosh Adr. Among the many different lessons and, uh, and teachings that we have in Chassidus in general, starting from the Alta Rebbe, Chassidus Chabad, from the Alta Rebbe, going through all the Rabbeim, and specifically Deir Hashvi, Ar Rebbe. I'll choose one, there's obviously so many, and uh, hopefully either you can learn the others in the Maimorim and the Sichas, or listen to previous episodes of My Life Chassidus Applied, where I discussed it in previous years, and I'll give you the cross-references to those programs after we finish this uh, segment. So, Mishpatim. Mishpatim. This is the, these are the laws that you shall place before them. This is a commandment from God to Moshe Rabbeinu. And in it we begin the actual rational laws. Many of the laws of litigation, of damages, of financial conflicts, and so on, are derived from this chapter. So why does it say, Ve'ela Mishpatim? Because Ve'ela tells you, Mesif ala with a vav, a mesif, that just as the laws that were given in the previous chapter in Yisrael, Matan at Sinai, so too are these are given from Sinai. My Kamashmulan, what's why do we need to be that needs to be emphasized? Isn't all the Tera laws from the God? Laws from Sinai. So one of the explanations given is because the word Mishpatim. So there are three different ways the Tera refers to mitzvahs. Mishpatim, Eidos, and Chukim. Mishpatim are the rational laws, the laws that human, the human mind would have come to with common sense to be able to create coexistence. The second category, Eidos, which means like witness, commemorative mitzvahs, that are bearing witness to events. For example, Shabbos reminds us of the creation. Pesach reminds us of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Shavuos, Sukkis. These are mitzvahs that are not super rational, they make sense, but they're not purely based on civil 
behavior and, uh, and ethics and morality. These are the edus. And the final category, chukim, are the super-rational mitzvahs, which a human being would never have come to. Poradum, of course, is the classic one, the red heifer, to purify from the impurity of death. Shatnis is another example, and many other mitzvahs that are not based on human rational. This is God's commandment. Chassidus explains, why do we have these three categories? They're not just random. They each reflect, reflect another aspect of our relationship with the divine, with God. This, the rational reflects a relationship that makes sense, which means our minds and our hearts can relate to it. So it's far more integrated and internalized in ways that we human beings with our minds can relate to these mitzvahs. They make total sense. The third category, the super-rational, reflects mitzvahs that are purely God's will. That's a relationship with God on God's terms. Though we may not, we may not understand it, even though there could be explanations given, but it's primarily, what, what, what's prominent there primarily is the fact that God wanted that. And that's important also to have, because we want a relationship with God not just on our terms, but also one on God's terms. And Adis is right in between, like a mamutza, like an interface. All these mitzvahs are interfaces. Remember, mitzvahs comes from the word connections. So the first one is a connection integrated into our system, into our faculties. The third, the chukim, is a connection with God on God's terms. And Adis is a combination. On one hand, it's because something happened that God did, created the world, took the Jewish people out of Egypt, gave them the Torah. They dwelled in Sukkot and other mitzvahs of Edis. On the other hand, it's not super rational. It makes total sense. Something special happened in your life. You commemorate it. So we have basically the, 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 the full interface of a fusion and an integration that, that is both on our terms, on God's terms, and then they both come together in one seamless flow, which is ultimately the Kavonah Chassidus teaches how Ahdus Hashem, that we should internalize the divine, but to do that, you have to go through these three steps. So that's why the Pashas begins, because you may think that the rational mitzvahs are not quite with the same intensity, with the same divinity, or the same authority as it was given at Sinai. It says, no. Meaning, just as those were given at Sinai. That means they have that full power of the divine. The rest of the mitzvahs, so too these laws of Mishpatim are also with that same intensity. So even though they're rational laws that we may have been able to devise, even with our own minds, but they were given by God, so they're infused with the divine element. The fact that it's rational doesn't make it less divine. The Friedrich Rebbe actually says in my modem, the Rebbe cites it quite often, that even Mishpatim, have an element that are beyond rational. Because how gufakash, who made them, who, who decided what rational is, what's not rational. Remember, the rational mind is also created by God. So logic itself is created by something that's beyond logic. And the same thing with chukim. Chukim also have ways to explain them and understand them and internalize them as well. Another point that the Rebbe makes, emphasizes very often, is that Without the foundation of Sinai, the rational mind, even if it comes up with these laws, it'll never be absolute. It'll always be conditional and arbitrary. 
You need to have the bedrock and know, I am your God that gave you these laws. You can't just go with your rational because one day you can decide due to subjective reasons and prejudices that, you know, maybe I have a different reasoning now. The Rebbe often gives the very tragic example from what happened in Nazi Europe, that you had brilliant people and philosophers and doctors and scientists. And look, without a they started playing God and their rationale took them to places that no human being ever behaved in such an atrocious fashion, completely inhumane behavior. So the necessity that the rational laws be always built on a super-rational foundation, which is coming from the divine, from God. Now the lesson to us is, of course, on many levels. First level is that what a beautiful aspect of Judaism is, and Yiddishkeit is, that it's not just about listening to God's laws. Of course everything starts with Nasev and Nishma, Kabbalah sale. We accept it, but the goal is to internalize it. We're not just creatures of actions. The Ebishter wanted that we should have a relationship with him. You shall know, you shall recognize, you shall understand. And you shall take it to heart. You shall feel God. Love God. If it was only expected of us to be like servants that just serve God, servants don't need to love their master, nor do they need to understand their master. But the Torah wants us to have a relationship, a partnership. At the same time, we also remember, we always remember who is God and who is the creation. But the creation creates a total symbiotic relationship, a partnership. That's one very vital point. That means our individuality and our minds and our emotions are not a contradiction to godliness. On the contrary, those are forces created by God. As a matter of fact, the whole Chassidus is based on the principle that godliness manifests himself in ten spheres. From there evolved the ten faculties of a human being. So we align our Chochmah, our Bina, our Das, our Chesed, Gvura, Teferes, Netzach, Yisait, Malchus, Valachta, Bedrachov, and we follow God's ways. Mahu chanun, afata chanun, mahu rachum, afata chanun. Just as he's compassionate, so are you compassionate. So it's not just a distant relationship where we are infinitely apart, but there's also a place where we meet, a common ground. And we were created in the divine image. Of course, that means God is beyond any image, but he manifests godliness. Elokus, eiraleki. Not God, we're not talking about the, the essence, we're talking about the Giluyim, manifested themselves in a Seder Ishtashlis, in a structure that we can meet and we have that interface. So, on a very practical level, it means relationship with God is not annihilating us, not obliterating us. It's about us and about us joining together. And we meet halfway, so to speak. We join together. Which leads me to Shkolim, Pasha Shkolim. That's what Pasha Shkolim is, Machsis Hashekel. So there are mitzvahs where they brought, people brought according to their ability. Someone who was wealthier brought more offerings and, and more tzedakah. Came to Machsah Shekel, it says, Everyone brings the same half a coin, half a shekel. One of the explanations for this is because the other half is the divine. Famous Magid of Mizitzis Teda, Aseila Choshtei Chatzetzeris, so the word chatzetzis, which means trumpets from Parsha Baalescha, what's the chatzetzis? Shtei chatzetzis, shtei chatzitsudis. Two halves of a shape. In other words, one entire entity was divided into two chatzitsudis, that's chatzetzis, 
with the goal of us complementing each other. And Chassidus elaborates on this. As a matter of fact, the Hemshech Chaim Beis, the famous Hemshech Chaim Beis, there's over 550 pages, parentheses, in volume 2, that goes into volume 3, that just explains this tater of the Magid, of the union, of the partnership, and of the total Aglus between existence, between the, the human being, and the second half of the Machzis HaShekel, Leibushter. So it demonstrates this concept of complete fusion between the two. And finally, the month of Adar. Month of Adar, of course, Mishanichnas Adar Marban Besimcha, which begins Rish Chodesh. Rish Chodesh encompasses the entire power of this month, the energy of the month of Simcha. Simcha Peretz Geder. Imagine a life without Simcha, God forbid, where we live our lives peacefully, everything is going well, but you don't have the capacity to break out as Chassidus explains, especially the Maimah Samach to Samach, Tafresh Nuzayin, that the Rebbe Rashab said at the wedding of the Friedrich Rebbe, meant Simcha Peretz Geder. It pierces, it transcends all boundaries. It's the capacity for a human being to go beyond our structures, to touch the divine, transcendence, which is such a fundamental element, Ivdus Hashem Simcha in serving God. Why is, why is it not enough just to serve God? Obviously, don't serve God with sadness. But besimcha, because part of Aveda is not just on our terms. It's always about breaking out. Simcha demonstrates that you're going beyond just the regular routine. So simcha is a keli for the bligvul of Lamaila as well. So from the language of Chassidus, there's the work we do in a gvuldika way, which is structured, defined, rational. And then there are things that in the rational we come and realize that we, can, can, we connect to something that's beyond the rational, beyond the structure. And simcha is the tool to reach there. So all these three ideas come together and practical, applied chassidus terms, it means you're never trapped in your structure. Very often we feel hopeless, we feel resigned, we feel we can't get out of our situation. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, as the cynics like to put it. A generation comes and a generation goes. Nothing seems to be new. Says the Rebbe, nothing is new. But in when you go beyond the structure, Simcha, you go beyond Mishpatim, you go into the world of Chukim, you go into the world of the second half of the Shekel. That complements us and allows us to reach a place that's beyond our routines. That's why we say every day in Shema, and then, with all your might, with all your all. Ma'idecha means more than your regular. And this is a process we have to always introduce. In the words of Tanya chapter 15, Perik Tazvav, the Alter Rebbe says, that Aveda is called when you change, you get out of your comfort zone, when you change your routine. Even in the times of the Talmud, even when they studied 100 times, they would repeat the same, the same study. That sounds unbelievable, but it was their custom. So it's called loya vodei. A 101 time, that, one, that 101st time, that one outweighs the other 100 because it's the shift in quality. It's a shift from the routine. So on a very practical level, whatever it is you're doing in life, good things, do a little more. Go out of your comfort zone. You'll be surprised what happens. You know, they say as the neurons are fired, that's how they get wired. When your neurons try something new, your mind, 
your cognitive conditioning, your emotional conditioning, your actions go beyond the regular routine, things change. You open up a channel, a tzinner, for more than the regular. So if you want more than the regular, do something more than regular. It all depends. It's always the action and reaction, cause and effect. People say, I'd love to have change in my life. I want something new. Do something new, and the result will be a new energy. It seems simple. The reason it's difficult is because the lethargy, the status quo, the inertia that settles in, and we just stay where we are. It takes a while to assume a new ritual, a new habit, a new behavior. But as soon as you do the Bechol Mo'etcha, especially if you continue to turn it into a new comfort, meaning it becomes your new norm, that changes things also from above. Like it says, Metan, the Ebishter says, that when you're Metayar Atzmei Lamato, Ma'at, even you go with a little, is Harben Neisena, Metayar Neisena Harben Melmaila. So if you come even with a little, your little shift brings in result far more because it's a shift on God's level, a shift that brings more brachas and more blessings and more uh, possibilities and new openings. So a perfect time to begin as we enter now this Pasha's new month of Odr. Odr is Mazole Togim. It's a mazel, mazel body, considered to be a far better mazel for the Jewish people, especially during this COVID period where we all have had different constrictions and different uh, disruptions. What better way to demonstrate that we use it as a catalyst and a springboard to open up, to do new things, being more innovative in our Vedas Hashem and serving God in our Avavis and love for each other, our kindness, our, uh, our goodness and kindness, and our efforts in bringing Mashiach and Geula in our learning Chassidus and applying Chassidus. So any extra effort creates that result. So if you need a good opportunity, here's a perfect opportunity to begin. Okay, as far as cross-referencing, the times I've spoken about this in previous years is episodes 55, 105, 150, 200, 250, and 298. Okay, now those previous episodes can be found at chassidusapply.com, a dedicated website to all things chassidus necessary, and all the previous episodes, plus, of course, the current ones, other resources in learning Chassidus, whether it's a different Maimodim, I have a whole section there on Ayin Bays, the classes I give on a daily basis. We have now thousands of videos just of that. Samach Vov, and other Maimodim, and other very important and valuable resources. So check it out at ChassidusSupply.com. And of course, there is also the forum where you can submit an anonymous question of any type of question. Nothing is taboo, nothing is off limits. And I will... Hashem address it in, in time. Okay. So, we've been covering different type of topics. I do want to do one follow-up, which because it's still hanging, and I just want to get it, frankly, out of the way, to be honest. It's about the elections, about the polarized country. It's a topic that people keep writing about, so I feel, even though personally, if it was up to me, I probably would say, you know, let's move on. Let's find ways to grow. Let's find ways to change the world and bring the gu'ula. But since it is a topic, I will address it right now. So that way we can say, at least I covered it to some extent. So a bunch of questions came in after the talks I gave, after the programs of a few weeks ago. And I'll just read a few of them. 
and maybe comment, or maybe not comment, depending what is said. Shalom, Rabbi Jacobson. I learned a sikha printed in this week's Dvar Malchus. It means several weeks ago. This came in a few weeks ago. Concerning Lom Hirei Salam Hazeh. So that was Pasha Shmois. Now we're in Pasha Mishpat. The Rebbe explains that, okay, they bring a quote in Hebrew. Keshem Shah Dover Hoye Begulus Mitzayim Kengam Begula Asida. That basically the Rebbe compares the future Geula, that, that is where we are on his threshold, the imminent Geula, to Geulas Mitzrayim, that the Ebishter told Moshe Rabbeinu that the purpose of the whole Geulas is to reveal Shema Vaya, but the only way to get there is through a difficult Geulas. I learned this, I couldn't help feeling <laughs> that uh, the new president Biden was able to steal the election because things need to get much worse to a very dark place before Mashiach comes. Am I understanding the Rebbe correctly? Well, I don't believe the Rebbe was referring to that. Even with Ruch HaKedosh, there are many different elements of Golas, Dar Golas, that we can enumerate here that are far more challenging even were you to say that he stole the election, which again is up for dispute, and I'm not going to weigh in on that at all, for many reasons, because I have no opinion, I have no idea, frankly. But even so, I would I think I think it's somewhat a little insulting to true challenges that people face. We've gone through a Holocaust, we've gone through personal Holocaust, losses, deaths, even in the last year. So when you say a very difficult goal, you want to compare it to Mitzrayim, I would not talk about necessarily the elections in a free country like ours where we have the privilege and the blessing to be able to serve God any way we wish and send our children to any school. Whether Whoever wins or loses an election does not affect that at all. So I'd be very careful to take that type of leap. It just doesn't make sense to me. And as I said, even if you have your grievances, I don't think you have to stick it into the Rebbe Sichas. And the issue here is that Golas in general, that we should know that any darkness we do experience is part of, yes, a greater Gili Havaya, and this time a permanent Gili that will come with the Gula Amitiz Vashlem. And that's what I would take out from the Dvar Malchus, from that Sikha, and many other Sikhs. Okay. Another person writes, Reb Simen, no need to respond to this, but my musings after listening to episode 340 is basically a person's writing about, uh, again, grievances against the Democrats who call the Republicans, and he's calling from us being, from, we have gone from being called deplorables to being called domestic terrorists, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's an, I don't want to repeat, the, again, all the, these uh, grievances. Just looking at the punchline here. Now that we've been silenced by Big Tech, they expect us to sit at home for four years in quarantine while they destroy our country and turns it into the United Socialists of America. Let's see what he wants to say. Well, I'm happy that you're writing to me, and I hope you get it out of your system. But regardless, it's one of these very, uh, I don't even want to read it, rants about all the negative things that are happening in this country, uh, whether it's being turned socialist, the liberals, the, the far left. I am not denying that there are people in this country that have uh, ideologies and, and uh, agendas that may be quite destructive and quite damaging in uh, in running a country like ours. But at the same time, this isn't the first time this has happened. This country has have had all kinds of 
opinions, and even people with very strong liberal uh, extremes that are godless and other ways that are not necessarily good for the, for the country and for people in general. But where's the positivity? Number one, there's a God that runs this world. This country is Amalchus Shel Chesed. If you can tell me one example, and I can't find one, where you or I have been constrained from serving God in the best possible way, then we can talk. There's not one example of it. Are there challenges? Yes, there are challenges. But there are challenges under every regime. I think it's important to separate ourselves from the rhetoric and the, and the hysteria, frankly, of people who are on other, both sides of the aisle, one extreme or the other extreme. We have a Torah, we have a God, we have Chassidus, we have the Rabbeim, we have our marching orders. So if you could tell me these marching orders are being affected, is anything stopping you and I from doing everything possible to bring the message of Torah, of Chassidus, of goodness and kindness, of godliness, of Mashiach and Gula to people? I don't have any, any mania, any obstacle is all internal. Not from any president, not from any government. So, so what are we talking about here? That people have issues? Yes, that people have issues. But are these issues affecting our choices? Does it affect your children? I'm not, that does not mean I'm neutral about different positions. I'm not neutral about different attitudes. Obviously, we can have a discussion hopefully a civil discussion about political positions, what's better for this country. But I learned from the Rebbe. The Rebbe always looked at one thing, how our attitude is to God, to morality. Now you'll say, okay, there are a lot of people who are advancing all kinds of immoral behavior. Fine. You can voice your outrage. But even that, does that affect you directly or not? And can you do something about it? Which, of course, is the big question. If you can't do anything about it, that's still entitled to opinion, an opinion. But I feel that the healthy approach is that we need to be focusing on things we can do that bring light to this world. And if you encounter something that is darkness and you can do something about it, by all means. I have no problem taking a position on any given topic, but we have to be specific. These blanket statements that the whole country is going down the tubes, I just don't relate to it, as do many others. We don't relate to it because you're not being spe- be specific. What is it that you want to advance? What is your plan? What's your idea? You want to, for the next election in two years from now, mobilize people to vote for a certain platform? By all means, do it. Or four years from now. But though I read it and I will receive any letter and I will never ignore it, but I also think it's part of a conversation to just set our heads to be straight. The final thing I want to say, we, are not, we shouldn't be slaves to the media and other people's agendas. And that whether it's conspiracy theories about one thing or another. We have a tater, and that's why we have a tater, to avoid the, to cut through the confusion and avoid any type of distortions and have clarity. Sometimes we can achieve it easier, sometimes not that easy. That's why we have this program to the supply. That's what I try to do to my best of my ability based on the sources, based on tater and chassidus that we have. And I hope we all try to do the same thing in our own personal lives. That's how we live healthy, productive lives. You're speaking at the kitchen table or at the dinner table with your children. What are you talking about? Is this what we're talking about? Is this what will give the children an empowerment that they'll be able to take on the challenges of life? I, ask this, I just ask, as it's a rhetorical question, obviously. But suffice it at that, ten l'chachem v'yechkem eid.
Okay. Then I spoke about violence. So that really covered, you know, people did not like that I said violence is never acceptable. They gave me examples of times of war and so on. I believe I explained that pretty clearly. Um, uh, okay. A few more letters in the same spirit that I just said. A lot of people very, very disturbed about what they consider a stolen election, just sharing some sentiments. And then I have to be honest, for balance, I've also received letters the other way around that is saying that people have to move on and stop getting obsessed with all kinds of conspiracies that did not necessarily happen or never did happen. I'm not going to weigh in on that, as I've said, because of the obvious reasons, and I think I don't have to repeat myself. Okay, someone else wrote, Halacha permits us in extreme cases of self-defense to kill someone who's trying to kill us. Yes, that's correct. Those who walk in public without a mask during a pandemic are openly defying the advice of medical professionals and openly defying our community rabbis who have clearly and publicly stated we must follow the orders of health professionals. Therefore, it can be understood that these masks, these maskless individuals are walking around the community trying to create widows and orphans for whatever macabre reason of theirs. So why can't we preemptively kill them? I'm just reading it, but this is just, you see what kind of letters come in here. To minimize the damage they are causing. Since they are trying to kill us, we would be doing it in self-defense. And if you want to argue that maybe they are not doing it on purpose, that they are just fools, still Allah allows relatives of someone killed by accident to pursue and kill the person who recklessly caused the accident. Unless that person runs to an ear miklat, and I don't think we have an ear miklat today. I mean, when I read this, and I'm reading it now again, at first I thought it was a joke. I hope this, this guy is not serious. And if it's a joke, you know, I may wonder why did I read it. But just in case someone thinks like this, is like, I mean, it's, I don't want to use the word idiot, but it is idiotic to speak this way. The same halacha that talks about when, what is self-defense also defines what self-defense is. I mean, to suggest that, yes, absolutely we should follow medical professionals, and follow Torah authorities. But why don't you go over to a medical professional and ask, and ask a Torah authority if not wearing a mask is a, is a person who's like running around with a knife ready to kill you. Is that a precaution? Without a mask, is that a killing element? Is that a, would anyone paschal like that? So, okay, this is just another example. If this is serious, not a joke, I see this as another example of rhetoric of getting caught up in hysteria without clear thinking and definitely not tailored thinking. But since people may think this way, I just want to articulate. And then, of course, you're going to have people go the other extreme, that the whole masks is our hoax, vaccinations meant to kill us. I mean, please, we have these extremes. We have a tailored that meant to give us balance. There's a reason the Jewish people are smart people, and there's a reason that the nations see us as intelligent people, as we shall speak about shortly. And there's a reason we survived and we thrived till all, all these years, because we had a Torah approach that was not caught up in other people's opinions. Which coming into the month of others, the theme of Purim, of Marucha, not bowing to anything but God, includes us not bowing to all kinds of theories and conspiracies out there, no matter who it's coming from, from media, from this one or from that one. Anyway, okay. I think I did Abiz so I hope this puts it to rest. I'm sure more questions will come in. 
And I, yes, I will probably be accused by some as I totally don't understand. I'm naive and understand the threats that are out there. Well, this is the platform that I try the best. If you feel that you have something to say, you can always start your own platform and uh, go ahead and uh, try to uh, communicate your message to others. I try to keep a balanced approach based on Torah and Chassidus and what the Rabbeim told us, period. That's it. Okay. Since we're talking already about masks and COVID, there was one person who followed up. Let me make sure I have it. And asked, commented on something I had said a while back. Just find this here. Yeah. I heard Rabbi Shimon Jacobson say that the Rebbe never was in a pandemic. But I learned that from age 16 to 17, the Rebbe did not go to yeshiva due to the Spanish flu but stayed home and learned with his father. So yes, in the 1918, there was the Spanish flu. The Rebbe would have been 16 then. Furthermore, they also say the Rebbe went out. Typhus was the, the illness at the time, was the disease that the Rebbe went out and risked himself in helping others who were suffering from this, this, this uh, virus that was also causing uh, high fevers and caused many, many deaths. Um, okay, so... Uh, let me. What I meant that the Rebbe was not a pandemic, I meant through the Nisias. We never had directives from the Rebbe during a pandemic. But it's correct, you're technically correct that the Rebbe did live through the pandemic of 1918, which lasted, I believe, four years. And um, and during that Tkufi, the Rebbe lived in, uh, where would the Rebbe have been then? He would have been in Russia, of course. So that is correct. Tofresh Ayin Ches, Tofresh Ayin Tes, those years, Tofresh Pei. And yes, we have these stories. I never verified them, but so thank you for making me, for bringing this to our attention, and I uh, concur. And yet, when we came to COVID broke out last year, Purim time, when we became more aware of it, what I was looking for is anything in the Rebbe's Sichas that would indicate there were so many different things that happened during the Rebbe's leadership and continues to happen in the Rebbe's leadership that I couldn't find anything direct that the Rebbe addressed. I was really referring to in the Rebbe's leadership, Nisias period. Okay, good. Now, let us now move on to a bunch of questions that have come in. That uh, Let's start with the issue of psychology and chassidus. Very interesting questions. And it's something that actually from the beginning of this program back almost eight years ago when we started, uh, it was one of the first t- topics I addressed was that, because since we're going to do My, my Life Chassidus Applied, obviously addressing psychological, emotional issues, so the first question comes up, what's the relationship between Chassidus and psychology? Um, so let me read the many, many letters that have come in on this topic over the years. But I'm just reading some of the recent ones, and those that I don't cover, I'll cover in the, in the coming and following weeks. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. And the brief question here is, please frame psychology, spirituality, and exodus in some sort of context. Another question that came in, is psychology antithetical to Torah? But now let me read the, full, the fuller version of both these questions. Hi, hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for offering this forum. The resolution of doubt by providing clarity illuminates our personal and global world, bringing the ultimate gola, may it be now. Please define the following two, term, two terms from a Hasidic point of view. Psyche and soul. 
To what extent are they the same? Do they overlap? Are they different? Second, please clarify their Jewish and non-Jewish nature. Last, please frame psychology, spirituality, and exodus in some sort of context. With blessings to you and yours, which includes your listening audience, for a, for a, a good year. Thank you for all you do for all of us, especially during this past year. Okay. Very good. Very good questions. I'm going to read uh, another question and just address it all together. Hi. I've been having a question for a few years now. In school and seminary, teachers would share how psychology and Torah don't work together and how they are so different. We also learned how learning psychology in college or the like is hepechater, the opposite of ter, for many reasons. Among them being desensitized and seeing the world and yourself through a lens other than ter. I understand why it was shared to, uh, with us in that way, and I, and, I'm, and I am not hurt or angry by it. However, I'm confused. I've been to therapists, and I actually do understand the perspective my teachers speak from. I found that it made me a lot more self-centered, therapy that is. It made me aware of the real world and in a way desensitized me to all the learning I went through. I'm not regretting that experience because it is needed, but if Tate is okay with it as healing and as a stepping stool to be able to live like a yid properly, etc., why am I finding these negative side effects that I wish I never had to have? I'm not saying that it caused me to do an Aveda or the like, but it bothers me that it had an effect in any way. Putting aside my personal experience, I want to understand this topic. If it is part of Torah, there should be no harm. And if it's not, why is it okay? Going to therapy, basically. I hear teachers say it's ridiculous to be in therapy unless you need it. It seems like a great topic that is often referenced but not explained. Saying that it is worth losing some clarity in order to be healthy makes me feel angry. Why should I lose out on that? The unhealthiness I was exposed to isn't my fault, it's Hashem's. I wonder if you have an insight on this topic. Thank you for always answering and sharing Torah's perspective. Okay, so as I said at the outset of this topic, this is a theme that I spoke about at length, literally in episodes 1, 2, 3, 4, where I covered it pretty extensively because I did my own research. In beginning this program, I wanted to make sure what are the basic fundamentals of what Chassidus has to offer how does, it, how, does it, how does it overlap, if it does at all, with secular psychology? And when it comes to medical clinical issues, for example, heart surgery, or any other medical thing, we know that the Ebeshtu gave Teda Giz and Shus, and this week's Pasha actually, from here is given permission for the healer to heal. And no one says you go to a rabbi to perform heart surgery, God forbid. Or to a rabbi to, uh, to have a, a cavity filled in your tooth. Just as examples or other issues. Because the Torah clearly said God created a world. In it he embedded godly wisdom in medicine and in science. And chokhmah bagoyim taimim, which means the world has chokhmah and wisdom. And you go to an expert. You don't even go necessarily to the one with the most Yerusha You go with the one with the biggest expertise. But, there's a, but, but there gets more sensitive and more ambiguous and unclear. What about psychological issues? And again, I'm not talking about clinical psychology in terms of bipolar or depression or uh, schizophrenia or, other, or, uh, or borderline personality or ADHD or other different things that have been diagnosed one way or another. 
And we're not even getting into also whether all those diagnoses are correct. We're talking about things like more, the tan, Tanya speaks about things like Atzvos, depression, thinks about anger, jealousy, hatred, and other such topics. So what is the story with that? So first let me give you some references because I, I'm not going to elaborate as I did back then. Not only did I cover it in the programs, the first four programs primarily of my life, because I applied literally programs one through four, but I also wrote three pretty extensive and exhaustive articles on the topic, and I'll tell you their names, which you can find at MeaningfulLife.com. One was called Medicine, Psychology, and Spirituality. A second one, Psychology and Religion. And the third one was called, I'm sorry, Psychology and Religion, Are They, com- psychology and religion, are they Compatible? And the third one, is psychology good for us? Are therapists necessary? So whatever I'm going to say now is really a brief summary of some of the points. There, there is far more elaborate with many sources. Sources from Chazal, from Zohar, from Chassidus, and so on. So it's clear in Tanya, in the introduction, that he says that all the Eitzis in Avedis Hashem I'm offering you. Avedis Hashem is not just Benod and Lomokim. It's not just Avedis Hashem, Yeris Hashem. And the service that we do between us and God. It also includes Ben Adam Lechaveri, as he explicitly states at the end of chapter 12 in Tanya. So, as such, Tanya says all the Aitzes. So, how do you deal with that? So, there's two ways to explain it. That when we look in Tanya, in other words, we should be looking in Chsidis and Tanya for the answers. Why are we going to a therapist? We're talking about a therapist, not a, a, a Tanya therapist. We're talking about a therapist outside of that world of Yiddishkeit or Chsidis and so on. So two answers can be given. One is because we can't find it in Tanya. We don't have the ability. So we have no choice since there is an issue. So we have to go to whoever is an expert. A Yedid Mumcha. A Refa Mumcha. In the world of psychology. A second approach can be that we should be looking into Tanya. And it's our challenge. That's why the Alter Rebbe says that if you don't find the answer, go to the Gdelim Shebeir. He does give us recourse. Go to the G'delem, I translate G'delem as the mature, emotional mature people in your city, in your community, and speak to them. Let them help you draw it out of Tanya. But meanwhile, you're unable to do so, so that's why you may go, going back to the, the, the first answer. A third answer you can say is that maybe Taka, there's certain things where there's a boundary. You ask the question, maybe Chassidus can only go this far. My understanding is that Chassidus does have these answers because Chassidus does talk about Chochmas HaNefesh. But I don't see any problem where Chassid and a person learning Chassidus and Tanya can complement it by talking to a person who's been trained even in secular psychology. Not because necessarily they have something we don't have, but they may have the right wording, a methodology, an expression. They have experience. At the end of the day, it's not just ideas, it's also human experience. Which is why I personally try to collaborate often with psychologists and psychiatrists and people in that field. The key difference between secular psychology, you asked the question about the psyche and the, and the, and the soul. So first of all, psyche, and therefore the word psychology means, psychology means logic is study, psyche is soul, study of the soul. Psyche is just the original Greek or Latin for the word soul. Now, that doesn't mean it's the same neshama that we talk about as the neshama that psychology talks about. Because remember, psychology has also many branches. 
comes to Viktor Frankl, the Rebbe actually, in a way, the Rebbe encourages following some of his ideas because they talk about meaning in life being the driving force. You talk about Freudian psychology, it's very antithetical to Tata, that the driving force is the id, pleasure, sexual pleasure, and so on. But that doesn't mean there aren't things that can be learned from there. So when you say psyche and soul, it depends who's saying it. If I say the word psyche and soul, I mean psyche as we understand it from a soul perspective, from Chassidus and Tata. That God created the human being by imbuing in it, breathing into it God's breath of life. That's all human beings. And therefore we have that soul within us. Another word can be psyche. If you really want to break it down, psyche maybe is you can talk about it connecting more also to the nefesh habamis perhaps. I never translated it as such. It's a nefesh. It could be either nefesh. So that's regarding the word psyche and soul. The key difference, however, between secular psychology and Torah psychology, or chassidus, is the role of God and a divine soul. In many secular psychological, psychological systems, they actually see it as anathema, as off-limits to talk about faith, religion, beliefs, and so on. I find that to be a problem. Why is that a problem? Because so much of our psychological issues are spiritually connected. We have a soul. So to ignore the soul. Now I understand why they want to ignore it. Because they see religion, some see it as actually neurosis. They see religion as a negative. Now frankly, some religion has been distorted and hijacked by, by dysfunctional people. But the healthy religion, healthy faith, as we spoke before about Elah Mishpatim, Shatosim Lefneim, Gam Elu Misinai, Ma'arishenim Misinai, Af Elu Misinai, that on the contrary, looking into Torah, looking into Chassidus, about Neshama will enhance the so-called rational psychology of our times. But that's another discussion, how to deal with it. But that's the key distinction. They cut out faith, they cut out religion and God, and I believe that can actually be causing damage. Now, are there good psychologists who are secular psychologists? Yes, they may have the wisdom, the sensitivity. I'm not suggesting they may not have very important insights. But it would be far more holistic and complete, as I write in those articles, if soul and psyche were connected. This, again, does not mean that the therapist or the practitioner should be preaching and telling the person to do mitzvahs or what, what religion to embrace and how to embrace it. But to ignore the dynamics of the soul, to me, is like ignoring the dynamics of the psyche. That's from a Torah Siddhisha perspective. Okay. Now, as far as the Jewish and non-Jewish nature, I'll address that in the next questions. Is there a difference between the psyche and soul when you talk about a Jew and a non-Jew? But then the question of framing psychology, spirituality, and exodus in some sort of context, I believe I just did that. So the best would be, I remember a professor calling me, actually the head of the Department of Psychology in her particular university, and said to me, I just finished reading your book, Toward a Meaningful Life. Wonderful. Brilliant. She said, I believe that where psychology ends, chassidus begins. Those were her words to me. So I said to her, if I may, with respect, say, I think, and she wanted to collaborate with me. She'll bring up a psychological topic from her perspective and from her training. And I should add, what chassidus adds to it. So I said, with respect, I suggest something better. You have experience and knowledge that you've learned from your studies 
and your uh, experience. Why not look for it? Look, why don't we do something better? We will collaborate in creating a, a model that encompasses the best of both worlds. Instead of saying this is psychology and, and here's where Chassidus begins, where psychology ends, let's take what you've learned. I will suggest and bring to the table that which Chassidus says, and then let's turn it into one integrated system. Because there are many areas, there may not be contradiction, they actually can complement each other. And when I say complement, obviously I don't compare Chachmas Adam, human science or human mind, to Divrei Elikim Chaim, to what the Torah says. But just like we said before with um, other science, the Rebbe brings lessons from, from, from science that we learn from that ideas in Chassidus. So why not do the same here? And not tainting or compromising the Torah Chassidus approach. Just learning, so may have an organized system already. That to me would be optimal. To create a new psychological model that's called the Chassidus psychological model that everybody in this world can benefit from. And you have the best of all the elements, those that have the experience. Like it says in the Gemara, Rabchia went to study, what is it, for 14 years or 7 years, I forgot the amount of years, to study sheep by a shepherd. Because for him to understand the halachas of kashrus and shechita and different things, he needed to study sheep with someone who knows sheep. So the same thing could be with people who are practitioners who deal with psychological issues. Why not learn from them? And frankly, I would even say in clinical areas, whether it's issues dealing with uh, tragedies like suicide or other addiction and so on, Chassidus has much to offer that I have no doubt can contribute and lift up the entire approach of the psychological world. And let us hear what the psychology says and see how that can be enhanced and how it could be all brought together into a model that is a Chassidic-based model of psychology. I should also mention um, Rabbi Tversky, who just passed away, who did many inroads in this direction, and he gets much credit for helping many people. Someone who was a proud Jew, a proud Chosset, that was able to bring some integration in that world. Rabbi Avram Tversky, all of us show. Okay. So I think I covered it, and I gave the cross-references, um, and there's much more in those, uh, those sources. So let me now move to a question that's been, that I see more and more questions keep coming in, I finally have to revisit it. So as many topics, you know, I can imagine almost seven full years of My Life Chassidus applied, 343 episodes, you could imagine we covered quite a few topics. So it's inevitable that questions are going to come and that have been addressed. But I try to always firstly cross-reference and tell you what has been addressed so you can look it up there and maybe add a nuance or two. Many times the questions focus on something that was not focused on before. But I see it all as complementing each other, all the different uh, discussions we've had on these topics. So the issue of Jew and non-Jews and non-Jews, and how we look at non-Jews, something I've discussed, and let me give you immediately the sources, because I've discussed it at length. It wasn't just briefly. Many episodes. What is a non-Jew? How does Teirach see a non-Jew? And especially including the context of the question earlier asked, about psychologically and spiritually, do, do we have different attitudes? If you're like a, a chassidish therapist or chassidish mashpia mentor and an anju comes to speak to you, would you address a psychological issue differently? So this is a topic that I believe has not really been fully appreciated and developed even by us chassidim because we have certain basic black and white uh, thoughts on the idea, but it's a far, far more nuanced 
And I will try to share again some brief points here based on many questions that came in. I don't think I'll be able to cover all of them. Oh boy, there's a lot. And, um, but I want to refer you firstly to the places I've spoken about it. So if you are interested in this topic, I strongly encourage you to listen to these episodes. Yes, it may take a little time, but that's how we learn things. Because it's not a quick topic, it's not a quick fix, there's no five points. It's pretty comprehensive and complex for that matter. And the Rebbe, of course, spoke about it at length, which is one of the reasons I believe this is a very important and relevant topic, because if we're going to bring Mashiach and Geula, part of it is we're dealing in a world of 8 billion people. What's our attitude? And Mashiach and Geula, the Rebbe made it clear, is not just for the Jews. And that, like the Rambam says at the end, in Perikud Beis and Hilchos Malachim, then that time will be, that will be, that the Iker will be the Iker the that the Iker avoid of people will be the Dasis Hashemulvad, that the business of the world will be nothing but knowing God. No more famine, no more avarice, no more jealousies, no more um, famine, and so on. So it's important to know the attitude when you talk to a non-Jew. How should we talk to that person? So here are the episodes when I discuss this at length. Episodes 30, to 30 through 32, 85, 100, 122, 157, 192, 210, 239 and 240, 247, 251, 267, 271, 281, 283, 294 and 333. So that just shows you, firstly, how many questions came in on this topic and how much I dedicated time to it because of its importance. I believe I said back then, first times I spoke about it, that I, based on my own education, I don't feel we really have a handle on the Rebbe's approach to this issue. The Rebbe spoke about extensively during the Mems, the 80s, about Sheva Mitzvah's Breneach. Just to tell you the amount, 800 pages I myself gathered them, 800 pages of the original Hanochas, 800 pages, like uh, four books, that the Rebbe spoke about the topic. Clearly, because the Rebbe was entering the new stage, that the world was in a place becoming more ready for Gu'ul and Mashiach, and therefore this mitzvah that we have to influence, as the Rambam writes at the end of chapter 8 of Hilchas Malachim, to influence and inspire the non-Jewish world to embrace the seven universal Noahide laws, is critical because that's how you prepare the world for Geula, a world of tzedek and yeshir, l'shevis yitzara, civilized world living up to oz epech el amim sofa bruda, all serving a God and God's laws. So that's why it's so vital to get a handle on it. And one place I immediately refer you to is go to Lukutei Sichis Chelik Gimel, volume 13, page 230. Read that page with all the footnotes of the Rebbe. It's a letter from the Rebbe, Yudbeis Tama's letter, where he explains Hilchus Rambam, the, sof, the end, Sof Hilchus Shemitah the end of the laws of Shemitah and Yevil. The last statement the Rambam makes there, the last halacha, Leishevet Levi Bolvad, not the tribe of Levi alone, but Kol Ish Ve'ish, every person, Ashenod Ve'ruchei, that dedicates their spirit, that dedicates their life to God, is that person becomes sanctified like the holy of holies. And the Rebbe makes it clear, includes non-Jews. 
And you say, one second, what does that mean? It goes against what many people believe. Check out the footnote. With all the sources necessary, learn that properly and you'll have a new perspective on this whole topic. And I would even say a new perspective of how the world can be ready for the Geula. So, because of time limits, I'm going to read a few questions. Um, but I gave you the, ba- the, the backdrop and the main foundational sources. So, first question. Do non-Jews have free will? Or better put, do non-Jews have a soul and free will? So this is a two-part question. In episode 283, you stated that non-Jews have free will. I asked the Rebbe if, if, that, if, if Goyim have free will, and he answered the following. 50-50, read chapter 24 of Tanya. So I looked this up in chapter 24 of Tanya, and I read how Bilam could not go beyond what Hashem allowed him to say. So that's why it's 50-50, as it's not complete free will. Okay, it's interesting. I would love to see the answer the Rebbe actually gave you. Did the Rebbe write 50-50? That, that I've never seen, but uh, if whoever's read that, if you don't mind sending me the actual answer, complete answer, or to tell me that that is the actual answer, it would be very interesting. Following up that question, another question. Concerning episode 283, does a non-Jew have a soul? So I'm asking, does a non-Jew have a five-part soul like a Jew? Nefesh, Ruch, Neshama, Chai, Yechida. Or are they lacking Chai, Yechida, which aren't in the body of a Jew, but surround the body and are connected above, as it says, it's Makifim. Are there other differences in the soul of a Jew and the soul of a non-Jew? What happens when someone converts to Judaism? Thank you for your time in answering these questions. So another part of that is, in Patek Beis of Tanya, when it speaks about the Evesh Alekis, it brings the Pasuk, Vayipa Ba'ap of Nishmas Chaim. My question is, how do we see from there that Jewish people have an additional Hashemah? Firstly, Adam was the father of all humanity. And since Adam has Nishmas Chaim, so all his children do, Jew or non-Jew. Not just the Jewish people. And secondly, why can't we say that it'd be referring that's Nishmas Chaim to the Nefesh HaSichlis? Another person wrote, I asked a few weeks ago if a non-Jew has a godly soul and you answered that a non-Jew also has a godly spark. Does that mean that the Jew and the non-Jew are both identical with their connection to God? Now there's more. Um, should I read one more? Yeah, why not? Are non-Jews pure and divine? In the message, your, your inner pliable flame, Rabbi Jacobson says, the Torah says that human being is fundamentally good. You're a pure divine entity forever and ever. Is this, in your view, equally true for non-Jews as well as Jews? It's important to me to know what the Rebbe said about this. Thank you very much. I'm going to add that my rabbi specifically told me when I asked that souls being part of God and being eternally only refers for sure all Jews and probably some others. So you can see why I was looking for a very specific answer to my question. Thank you so much. Now, as I said, there are more questions, but let's, let me just address this briefly. And I refer you again to the sources that I've already stated, including the Lekut Sikhis, volume 13, page 230. So back then when I spoke about this, I, um, I cited the story where Professor Block, it's called Block, Oliver Shalom, from London, Ontario, for many years, a shliach there, professor, um, once brought in 1960 a group of students to the Rebbe, in Yechidus. Among the questions they asked the Rebbe was this, and the Rebbe actually edited that Yechidus, and it could be found, you can find it at MeaningfulLife.com, with the edits and other places as well. We published it at the time. 
So one of the questions they asked, I'm giving you the full version of it, it's not all published. They said, we asked Dr. Block whether non-Jews have a soul. And he said, no. We're asking the Rebbe if that is correct. Dr. Block was in the room, he told me afterwards, he was in the room. And he said that the Rebbe said, as if he wasn't standing there, you can tell Dr. Block that he's wrong. They have a soul, a spark. It's not like a Jewish soul, but they have a divine spark. And then the Rebbe edited it, and it's all published this way. And there are other places where there actually is an actual letter from the Rebbe that I just recently saw. I'm happy to share it. If anybody wants to get any sources that I'm citing, just write us in the form of, but give us your email address where we can send you. And the Rebbe writes clearly that a non-Jew has a soul, a different type of soul, and there's sources for it. There's a Teisvis, and other places where this is discussed. Again, the sources I've already given you to look up before. So then when the Alter Rebbe says, Nefesh Hashem is B'Yisrael, Harzishtim with Bayipach Ba'apav Nishmas Chaim, which all human beings originate from Adam. So firstly, you have to remember the concept of Jew did not happen halachically until Matan Teireh. Adam Adishan, technically, legally, you did not have the category of a Jew. Even though Kaima Kolatera, there was also no category of a non-Jew as we know it today. All the nations were God's creatures. Then there came a point where it became legally, and that's why the Jews had to go through a gear conversion when they, when they, by Matan Teireh. That's number one. Number two, in the Kisra Rizal, it says that if there was no Chetet Tzadas, the whole world would have been different. That what we understand now as non-Jew may never have happened, or would not have happened. Not that it's a negative. It's that the Chetet Tzadas shifted things. But the fact that every person is created B'Tselem Elikim is a Mishnah. Chaviv Adam Shenivra B'Tselem. And most interpret that being the Tzalem Elikim of every human being. That's why afterwards it says, but the first phrase, the first statement is So every human being is created in the divine image, and that's why the non-Jewish world has Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Neach. They come from Neach, who comes from Adam. Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Neach, because Neach added one more Mitzvah, Eivr Menachai, Adam already had six, but not the seventh. And all human beings are expected to live up to that. Expected means that they have an element of free will. Definitely around their Sheva Mitzvahs. You'll say, is that full free will? You know something? In Tov Shechess, Friedrich Rebbe says that free will by Id is only purely in Tere Mitzvahs. Free will does not mean which street you're going to walk, what color, what, what food is your favorite, or other things that are driven by Hizgoch Pratis. It's purely the decisions of right and wrong around Mitzvahs. So the Rebbe says the same, free will, or if there's no free will, there's no accountability, there's no expectation. So what does it mean they don't have pechira? It's another discussion in other areas, but not whether to choose. That's why chesidu and the righteous Gentiles, have a chelik in elam haba. But to be a righteous Gentile, you have to choose to be one. And then you have a part in the world to come. Elam haba means a neshama. Elam haba isn't just a good life on earth. It means the neshama continues on. But it's a different neshama with a different tafkid and purpose. I'm not going to go into now what's the difference even though that deserves discussion, I rely that you look up and listen to the programs before on this topic. You know, I'm doing my part by talking about it, but you have to do your part, do a little homework. And if you still have questions, I'm happy to address it further. So that more or less answers most of these questions. 
I'm just seeing, yes. So there's definitely an element of that. And, the, the, and this may be surprising to some of you because everybody thinks Tanya, it seems to state, like at the end of Perek Aleph, what does he say there? Um, and like one person writes, I went back to episode 31 to listen to what the Tanya says about Goyim. There are Goyim who are offended by it. Can we tell them that Tanya is referring to idol worshippers? There he says, Ein bam tev that even when they do kindness, it's also with uh, ulterior motives. It comes from Shal Shkipus Atmeis. So number one, Rabbi Hill writes that the Alter Rebbe said that that's not that's not addressing Chsidumas Elam. They come from Klipas Nega, similar to the Nefesh Abamis of a Jew. Number two, the Alter Rebbe is writing the quintessential what a guy is. Yeah, Eved David Zara, Eved Gilulim. But Chsidumas Elam is not talking about them. So you can definitely say that. Secondly, as I discussed, or thirdly, I should say, that even that issue to do things for ulterior motives, even Alpitaida, even the Jews, the Rambam says at the chapter 10, at the end of Hilchus Shuva, that everybody except Avramu, Avramavinu, who he did truth because it's true, everyone has an ulterior motive, either for material gain or spiritual gain or so on. So all that needs to be explained. But yet in Tanya, he does say, Bonim Atem, that's Patek Beis, that there's a unique element of soul that was infused in the Jewish peoples by Matan Tera, especially Vonovacharta, which happened by Matan Tera, and that has a particular role. But does that contradict the fact that every human being on earth was created by God and has a unique role as well in fulfilling the divine mission that they were given? Now, because of time limits, I'm going to stop here, and I will continue this conversation. There's much many more questions that came in about it, but for now, I'm going to stop here, and I'm going to go over to the Chassidus question, which actually flows quite smoothly. The Chassidus question is, and then I'll do the essays. The Chassidus question is, here we are. What are the 288 sparks? Where did they come from, and what are we supposed to do with them? Okay, so in Kabbalah, specifically in Eitz Chaim, the Arizal, and Chassidus, of course, cites it many times, the idea of what we call Birur Hanetzutzis, the refinement or the clarity, the separation of the sparks. And it's specifically stated that there are 288 sparks, Rapach Dusha. 288 general sparks that vivify and energize everything in existence. You'll say only 288. Existence has much more than 288 entities. So Derech, what he says in chapter 37 in Tanya, even though Shishim Ribam Yisrael, 600,000, is Nisham is But then they break down specifically into many parts. The same thing with the 288 sparks. They break down into many, many, many details. But the general 288. These sparks are divine energy embedded in physical physicality. The Rizal derives it from a Pasuk right in the beginning of Chumash. So after the first Pasuk, it says, I'm sorry, it says, there was darkness that encompassed all of existence. And the spirit of Elikim, 
The word merachefes means hover upon the water. Very cryptic. Says the Ariza, merachefes is the word zamach, rapach mes. Merachefes says rapach 288 mes. Merachefes, when you reorder the word, letters, it's rapach mes. The 288 sparks that died. What is dying referring to? Vayomas, vayimlach, vayomas at the end of Pasha Vayishlach, that the Zoyer and other Sifri Kabbalah explain is that the sparks that were in the containers in Toyu, and because of the intensity that Eris Merubim, the energy was too intense and the, and the Kalim were too fragile, so it shattered. That's the mess. The 288 sparks, not that the sparks died, that the sparks within the containers shattered and the sparks scattered and ultimately evolved and are now scattered all over and embedded in existence. Each one of us is allocated with a certain amount of sparks we need to discover and find and elevate and redeem. That's the halos and birur hanetsutsis. So when you eat a piece of food, that food has a spark. You can eat it just to indulge, and then the spark remains trapped. Or when you eat it l'shem shemayim, make a blessing, you have redeemed and elevated the sparks. Chesidus explains again from Kabbalah that in Mitzrayim it says the Ed of Rav, that the Ed of Rav, what's Ed of Rav? Rav is a Reish Beis. 202 out of the 288 sparks were elevated when the Jews left Egypt. So basically the rest of history is to elevate 86 sparks. As the Al-Tareb and Pasha Vayeshev and Tere'er it took only a few hundred years to elevate 202 sparks and it takes thousands of years to get 86 sparks. So he said, because they were neshamas, very high neshamas, neshamas clolis, they were able to, they had much more power to get those, those 202 sparks. We are lower neshamas, so we don't have quite that power and it takes a lot more work to find them. In addition to them being also sparks that are deeper embedded in the lowest parts of this world. The Rebbe tells us, beginning approximately Tovshinun, Nunalov, that we already were finished Avedis Habirudim. That's Birudim, Avedis Habirudim. Now we have to open our eyes and see and reveal. Remember, we still have the habits and routines and the mindset, the psyche, if you wish, of yesterday, of when it was still not redeemed. So we still are fighting that battle, but the truth is it's been finished. And when we recognize it, that's when the Geula will be revealed in the fullest possible way. That's the brief explanation of Rapach Nitzutzis, which of course is so relevant to our time, where we are right now, is recognizing that, opening our eyes, and making it part of our reality, realizing how this world has become refined. And the Rebbe gave all the examples, open your eyes, look at technology, look at politics, look at the state of the Jewish people. So many areas where you see that the world is not the same world as it was, which was a central theme when he spoke about Sheva Mrs. Neach, why Jews didn't do that earlier, because then the world was not ready for that. It was a sakana, danger. Now the world is receptive and will welcome our spreading and inspiring and influencing everyone we meet with those universal laws of divine laws of ethics and morality, tzedek and yesha. So with that, let us now do, we come to the end of this program, we always conclude with the essay, so this was the sixth annual Essay and Creative Contest. We added a creative track. My Life Chassidus Applied Contest. And we've been going in order each week. We're now up to the 14th place winners. We announced four winners 
I, I read the announcement back when we announced it um, right before Rosh Hashanah. This year everything was delayed due to COVID. But we go through each week the four. The four tracks are the essay in English, the essay in Hebrew by men, the essay in Hebrew by women, and the creative track. So the essay in English, 14th place, the BT approach, ways to move past barriers to growth. Michal Moshel, age 25, psychology student, Dover Heights, Australia. An excellent essay, I must say. Basically explaining about Shuva is not just someone who did Shuva over Avedis. It's someone who, did, who created change in his or her life. And how much we can learn from that and how to grow. Because one of the big traps many people have is I can't get changed things. Things seem helpless, hopeless. I'm resigned. Or even when I start changing something, I really gravitate back to my original state. So he said, you can learn from the Balshuva experience how we create change in our lives in a fundamental way. I thought it was a very practical and powerful essay. And you can find this essay at chassidusapplied.com. Just go, you'll see there the winners and just read it. Beautiful. The 14th place essay in Hebrew, men, Milus Hanesuyin, Ariel Nevei, Betar Elit, Israel. So here he talks about the qualities and the virtues of marriage, Apichsidis, what Chsidis teaches us about the beauty of marriage. Again, very wonderful and informative that we can learn from essay. The top, the 14th Hebrew essay, women, Simchazu Lebducha, Lebducha, Lebducha. This joy is not a joke. Student, Miri Sudakevich Kvar Chabad, Israel. So talking about Simcha, in the Chesidish way, what Simcha really is. It's not just some lighthearted friv- frivolity or emptiness. It's a deep personal experience of life and transcendence. We talked about it a bit earlier as well. Another excellent essay. The two Hebrew essay co- essays can be seen at another site which is dedicated to the Hebrew contest the Hebrew division of the contest, Hebrew chapter, which is diralo.org. And finally, the creative track. The world around us through the lens of Hasidus. The creative form was mixed media with text and visual by Freda Raskin, age 18, student, Beis Rivka Ladies College. Her hometown is East Bentley, Australia. So this is an image that you can see. A world runs through the lens, actually the lens in Hebrew, Mishkafayim, the lens that you see the world differently when you look through Chassidus. Beautiful way of capturing it. And again, you can see that at Chassidus, at my life, I'm sorry, at chassidusapply.com. So there you have it, the episodes. We finish now episode 343. May it be a real every day more simcha. Till we reach it to Simchas Elam Al Reisham, the ultimate joy, the joy of the Geula Amitis Vashlema, and every effort we make in applying Chassidus and learning Chassidus, bringing it to people in every possible way, increases and speeds up that Geula. Everyone will be blessed. Everyone be healthy, joyous, and we are here every Sunday, eight to nine p.m. My life Chassidus applied. Thank you very much. This program is brought to you by My Life. Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapplied.com slash donate.